following message is presented by First Baptist Church of Morgan City, Louisiana. For more information, go to the website www.fbcmc.org. Now the message. If you have your copy of God's Word tonight, we are in Galatians chapter 4. Be finding Galatians chapter 4. Have your outline ready to go? And am I on? You working? Okay. Just get it up a little closer to my mouth. So we've been going through the book of Galatians, and as I said, uh, it, it's a way of helping you prepare for your uh, attempt of apologetics. Apologetics is a defense. Uh, it's a way of making a case to defend uh, basically a re- religious doctrine, uh, the gospel, whatever it is that you are attempting to defend. And uh, it's a practice. And just like I mentioned this morning, you're, if you're a practicing Christian, apologetics is something you should try to practice in your witnessing attempts. So we're going to look at something that Paul uses uh, along the lines of that to help out in his apologetic attempt here in the book of Galatians as he writes this letter. As I mentioned this morning, we uh, spent a few days uh, this past week at what has been dubbed as the happiest place on earth. And uh, even though you willingly go there and you pay the entrance fee to get in and enjoy your day at the happiest place on earth, once you enter in, uh, you're not free to do whatever you want to do. There are still rules that apply to each and every person that are there. Uh, you have to wait in line unless you have paid for a fast pass or a lightning lane. You can get in a little bit quicker and still you have to wait there. You break line, you hold a place, you skip a line, you get expelled from the park. Uh, there are different things that you can and cannot do. There are different things that you can and cannot bring in. The first thing you do when you get to there is you go through a security check part. If you've got something on you, a weapon, uh, a little illegal item along according to their lines, and their de- definition of what an illegal line item is, you cannot bring it in, even though you want to. You have to adhere by their rules. And it, do you ever think about where some of the rules and the laws that we have uh, in our state, in our country come from, how they derive? Somebody did something stupid, and now we have to have a law in place to prevent that from happening in. I mean, literally... These days, they put some of the silliest stuff on the on a box of pizza on the cardboard box itself. Do not eat box. They'll they'll put stuff like that on there just because somebody to prevent somebody from getting harmed. So we, we enjoyed ourselves at the happiest place on earth. We abided by their rules. We had a joke going on while we were there, we were there about doing something that we had saw someone else do at another place. Did you did you see? A couple of weeks ago, this guy at a Bass Pro Shops in Alabama, what he did. Now, I've been to Bass Pro Shops before, and I've never seen a sign that says, do not swim in the fish aquarium. And then the thought never entered my mind until I saw this guy do a cannonball in the aquarium at the Bass Pro Shops in Alabama. So while we were at the happiest place on earth, uh, my joke was every time we got to a bridge or a place where there was water up, I, I'd look at Jordan. I'd say, hey, I'm fixing to do a cannonball here. <laughs> and we would do that every time. And then finally Aaron said, Dad, if you do a cannonball, they're going to throw you out of the park. I said, where? I said, I haven't seen any signs saying do not swim, do not dive, do not jump off a bridge. He said, it's in there somewhere. So I got to looking, and I never did find anything. But 
It was too cold to do a cannonball anyway, so I wasn't going to try it while I was there. But do you ever wonder where some of these laws, these rules, and these regulations that we have come from? Even here in our church, we have laws and we have bylaws. We have rules that have been set in place. Somebody saw the need for it at some point in time. Where they come from, we don't know. Why were they were put there? Most of the times we don't know, but they are there. And they are guidelines to help us ensure that things are run uh, in a uniform fashion. The laws in our land, they are there for a purpose. So what the Apostle Paul is dealing with here in the book of Galatians are the people who consider themselves the upholders of the law, the enforcers of the law, the Judaizers as they are referred to. They are still going along saying, even though you've been saved, even though you're a follower of Jesus, there are still laws that you have to abide by. The Gentiles, when they became Christians, when they became converted as followers of Christ, they were still coming along saying, you must be circumcised to be a child of God. So the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's exactly what he's talking about. He's saying the law is there for a reason, but the law is not what saves you. Jesus Christ has paid for your salvation. He has secured your salvation. If there's any other way that you could be saved, if there's any other way that you can make it to heaven, then what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary was in vain. And so what Paul does here is he masterfully tells a story found in the book of Genesis that applies to the situation that he's dealing with. And he makes a contrast with it. Therefore, the title of this message tonight is a contrasting allegory. So there's a little bit of background that goes along with this. If you followed along in your uh, New Living Translation, the chronological Bible that we just went through, there's a very interesting note when you get to uh, Acts chapter 15 uh, that they added to this that gives you a little bit of background on what's going on on page uh, 1488 as it wraps up uh, Acts chapter 14. It says this note, it says, Paul probably wrote Galatians from Antioch shortly before the Apostolic Council in Jerusalem in A.D. 49. And then it takes you to Acts chapter 15, which lays out the reason for this council uh, that they were having. So the writing of Galatians, this gives you a little bit of background as to when the letter to the church of Galatia was written, A.D. 49. Paul and Barnabas attended uh, this council of the apostles in Jerusalem during that time. Some say that Paul wrote the book of Galatians from Antioch shortly before that council. Based on its nature, what was the nature of this council? Turn to Acts 15. We're going to do a little bit of background before we get into our passage tonight. The issue at hand for this council in Jerusalem was the circumcision of the Gentiles who have been saved. And in Acts 15, we see that uh, Luke writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He said, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot 
be saved. And if you listen to any of these messages on the book of Galatians, if you read it for yourself, you'll know that that is the number one thing that the Apostle Paul is dealing with here with the churches in Galatia. Verse 2, it says, Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So if you ever wonder why the Lord chose the apostle Paul, why he converted him from Judaism on that road to Damascus, and used him as a missionary, you're going to see right now in this passage one of the exact reasons why uh, why the Lord chose this man to be a missionary and to be a defender of the gospel. Now as he's writing this letter, the Apostle Paul is defending the faith against the Judaizers in Galatia that are promoting legalism. He is making his apologetic defense in the form of an allegory. So let's go back and refresh what the meaning of the word apologetics is. You're not apologizing. You're not saying you are sorry. It comes from the Greek word apologia, which is a defense. It means you are a speaking in defense. Apologetics is the religious discipline of defending religious doctrines through systematic argumentation and discourse. And the Apostle Paul uses this contrasting story from the book of Genesis to present one of the best apologetic defenses you'll see anywhere against legalism. So the purpose of apologetics is this. It's not to win an argument. The purpose of apologetics is to win a lost soul. How tragic it would be if our goal was to simply win Arguments. That's not what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He's not trying to win an argument. He's trying to win those who think that tradition, rules, and legalism are the way to salvation. And he's trying to make sure that they understand who Jesus is and what he did. How tragic it would be if our goal was to simply win an argument with someone and let them slip through our fingers and spend eternity in hell because all we wanted to do was win an argument instead of presenting the good news of the gospel to them. So apologetics is based off of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, if you want to write this verse down. Peter writes this, he says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who ask you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And those last two words are the key to that, doing it in meekness and in fear. So this allegory that we're looking at tonight in chapter 4, what is an allegory? An allegory is simply speaking to imply something other than what is literally said. It's telling a story 
It has a meaning. It's just like when Jesus used the parables. An allegory is a story that you are using to defend a case. And the Apostle Paul is trying to beat the Judaizers at their own game. He knows that this is a story that they would be extremely familiar with. He knows that they would understand the implications of this story and what it means. So he brings this story on board to present his defense to a group who are set on legalism. Pastor Johnny Hunt defines an allegory as this. It's a narrative with a deeper meaning behind it. It's a spiritual truth embodied in history. It's a shadow from the eternal world cast upon the sands of time. An allegory, according to Pastor Johnny Hunt, is to speak another meaning other than what the language openly states, but it is still a historic truth. Undeniably, these people that the Apostle Paul uses in his allegory, they were real. They are very, very significant to Jewish tradition and history. And they are very, very critical to God's love towards mankind. So allegory is this. Allegory is a uh, a literal meaning plus a hidden meaning. That equals an allegory. You can also refer to it as rhetoric, hyperbole. (laughs) It's easy for me to say, huh? You can refer to it as a parable. And here's the thing about allegory. Jewish rabbis frequently interpreted scripture in a way that they could possibly have one of four or all four types of meaning. One meaning that they would look at scripture at is a literal meaning. This is exactly what it means, exactly what it says. They could look at it as a suggested meaning, a deductive meaning, or an allegorical meaning. What is this scripture trying to say to us? That's the way we should interpret scripture as well. Is it literal or is it figurative? Is it an allegory or is it a historical statement? When Jesus said you must first remove the beam out of your own eye to see the speck in your brother's eye, what is he talking about? A literal beam in your eye? No, he's just saying what you have in front of you is much, much larger than what you realize. When Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Was he being literal about that? Probably not. But he's saying, do whatever it takes to keep you yourself from sinning. So what is Paul doing in this particular passage? He's beating the Judaizers at their own game. There's two types of allegory I want to mention before we get into the passage here. When you look at allegory, there is a classical allegory. The great philosopher Plato had an allegory referred to as the cave. As he described the story of the cave, there was a set of prisoners who were sitting in the back of a cave. They were facing the back end of the cave, and behind them was a fire that was lit, continued going the entire time that they were imprisoned in the cave. And in between them and the fire, there was a puppeteer who would create shadows on the wall. The prisoners were unable to turn their head either way to see what was going on to the side or behind them. So all they knew was the shadows in front of them, and it struck fear in their hearts. That was the only way that they could learn was by watching those shadows. And when they were finally free, they realized what was going on. And it wasn't until they were free and saw for themselves what was taking place 
Did they learn their lesson? What was Plato's purpose for this allegory? It's impossible to teach wisdom. People are only going to learn through experience, through what they actually see. Seeing is believing. And that was a classical allegory used by Plato. There's also a biblical allegory. If you've ever read, read any of C.S. Lewis's writings, perhaps you've uh, read the Chronicles of Narnia. Maybe you've seen the movie that came out about that. But it is an allegory that has a biblical meaning to it. It's a story that is depicting the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins through a character known as Aslan. And Aslan eventually becomes king of the people. He uses this story and these fictional characters to represent what actually happened in the Bible through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So now that you have the background on apologetics and what an allegory is and how they are used, let's get into our passage in uh, Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 21. And listen very closely about what the Apostle Paul says here, the contrast that he used, but also the emphasis that he makes on the importance of Scripture in your apologetic defense. Apostle Paul says in verse 21, Tell me, You who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? That is simply a rhetorical question that he is asking them. Basically, it's not pointed directly towards the churches of Galatia, but to the Judaizers that are in that area that may be reading this letter. He says, for it is written, key statement right there, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, The one by a bondwoman, which is Hagar. The other by a free woman, which is Sarah. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. Here's the first contrast that he makes. And he of the free woman through promise. Which things are symbolic? He states here that this is an allegory that I'm laying out for you. I'm using actual people who lived. Their life that they lived out represent a contrast, and I'm going to use their lives to demonstrate the difference between someone who is under the law and someone who has been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. He says, for these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, referring to a new Jerusalem here, which is the mother of us all. We're going to talk a little bit about why he is mentioning the mother here and not the father. For it is written, his first scripture that he refers to comes out of the book of Isaiah. Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. Even so it is now. Key statement here in verse 30. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? 
Paul is putting a very high emphasis on the importance of Scripture in an apologetic defense right here. What does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her sons. This is literally recorded in the book of Genesis. Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. I had to dig a lot to really come up with any solid points on this, but I think I got three solid points that you can write down. It took me a while to really catch on what the application was for us, but to help us in our apologetic defense, here's three steps that you need to remember. Number one, state the evidence which is exactly what the Apostle Paul did when he laid out the evidence of what is written in the Scripture. He laid out the evidence of what happened with Abraham, the two sons that he had, the bondwoman, the free woman, Hagar and Sarah. He laid all of the evidence out and used that in his apologetic defense. Number one, state the evidence. Number two, probably the most important one, is to confirm through Scripture. What you're saying, what you're trying to apply, can it be backed up somewhere in Scripture? You don't have to know the verses verbatim. You don't have to know exactly where to go find it at, but you need to have a general working knowledge of the basics of salvation that are found in the Scripture. John 3.16 is a very good one, but it's not one that will cover everything. When you get into someone who is really, really bent on tradition over Scripture, you need to be able to point to them. You need to take them to these places and show them where Jesus Christ has set us free from the law. And point number three, make the appeal. When the first two things have been completed, don't leave them hanging. You give the invitation, you ask the question, You find out where they stand on this issue, and then you say, can I show you how you can be saved? Let me give you an invitation to step into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me help you get out of the weight of religion and into the freedom that comes through knowing Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. So verses 21 through 24, state the evidence The Apostle Paul contrasted in this allegory two separate women, Hagar and Sarah. One was a bondwoman. One of them brought bondage and the other brought freedom. He also contrasted two different locations, Mount Sinai and Jerusalem. They each had their own importance in this story. But here's one thing I want you to point out that Paul did not mention. Notice that Paul mentions Isaac specifically by name, but he never mentions Ishmael by name. Instead, he specifies he who was born according to the flesh. And he refers to Isaac as the father of the children of promise. This is where the main contrast of this whole passage evolves from. This is where the main contrast comes in as Paul presents the evidence. 
So maybe you can take a current event, maybe something you've seen in the news, use it maybe as an allegory, a story, a representation of what you're trying to emphasize. Tell a story. Stories attract people, especially when it's a story that has a literal meaning to it. When it's a story that refers back to Scripture, when you can use those examples, why is this story in the Scripture? What is God trying to say through this? I got into a discussion with someone about the uh, the prodigal son earlier this morning. Uh, we were talking about some ways that we had we had possibly ventured off and done our own thing. We had gotten away from God, but we knew that God was always there wooing us back, drawing us back in. And I said, you know, that's exactly what the story of the prodigal son is about. And that's exactly why Jesus told us. So everyone would see that we have a loving, heavenly father that is anxiously waiting for us, looking for us. And a lot of times when we start making our way back to him, when we take that first step back to him, he comes running to us with open arms. That's an allegory. That is a story. It has uh, characters that maybe were not real, they were fictional, but it does have a deep, deep spiritual implication to it. But use that as evidence to a person that they, they, they can repent, they can come back, and God is always waiting for them with open arms. Step number two, confirm through the Scripture. How much of the Bible have you committed to memory? Have you intentionally set out to say, I'm going to solidify my apologetic defense by learning more scripture? I'm going to consume large portions of scripture. I want to be able to recall those, quote them, use them. But most importantly, do you have some way of getting to that verse when you need to show it to someone? Look, I, I cannot emphasize here the power of scripture. Not just quoting it, not just the spoken word, but the written word as well. When you can show uh, that person here on ink and paper exactly what is written in God's word, there's something about that that will change a person's outlook on the entire situation. When you can back up your opinion with something that's written here on the pages of Scripture, you've got the battle halfway won right there. And your defense is a lot more secure when you can do that. Know what Paul says in verses 22 and verse 30. If you didn't underline those, if you didn't highlight those, uh, do so now. Verse 22, for it is written. Paul didn't put that there by accident. Paul is being very, very intentional with pointing out to these Judaizers, these experts of the law, these people that would know the stories, especially a story of Abraham and Hagar and Sarah. Man, that Father Abraham, he, he was the man. He was the person that they all wanted to be connected to. And he said, if there's any story in the Old Testament that they would be familiar with, this is the one here and this is the one I'm going to use to prove that they are wrong in trying to uphold the law. Verse 22, for it is written. And if it was important enough for the Apostle Paul to refer back to Scripture in defense of his case in this matter and these issues, how important should it be for us to be able to identify those key Scriptures and passages? 
And in verse 30, he asks this rhetorical question. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? And we have religions and we have denominations that value tradition far more than they do scripture. They do not consider scripture to be their ultimate authority. We consider scripture to be our ultimate authority and not tradition. Paul is asking this question here for a very specific reason. He wants to get an answer back from them. Hey, can you tell me what the scripture is saying about this story? What is the spiritual implication in the story of Abraham and Hagar and Sarah? Why did God let us have this? Why is this recorded in the pages of scripture? It's almost as if he is challenging them to quote it for themselves. And when you're talking to someone about faith and doctrine and religion, do you ever ask them, hey, where, where do you get that from? Where does this opinion come from? Where does this tradition come from? Can you prove it in the pages of scriptures? Let me hear what you have to say as well. That's what Paul is doing here. He's asking them, he said, look, prove to me where it says that you've got to be circumcised to be saved. It's not in there. Don't just read it or quote it either. If you're dealing with someone that's having a hard time understanding what you're saying, let them read it for themselves. Miss Betty knows where I'm going with this one. I don't know how many people we've sat down in the office over there and one of the first things I'll ask them is, you know, if you die today, where would you spend eternity at? They'll say, well, you know, I, I don't know. I don't, I'm not real sure. I don't really think you can know for sure. And, but when I hear that, I, I know exactly where to go with them. I go to 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. And most of the times, I let them read it for themselves. I'll open it up and I'll point to it. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 says this. It says, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And I can't tell you how many times they've read that and they've stared at that page and they've looked back up at me and they say, I really can know, can I? I say, yes, you can. Would you like to know how? And it's cool to see when that light bulb comes on, when that really does register them that God has written in his word that he wants us to know for sure where we'll spend eternity at. So in your apologetic defense, in your attempt to witness to someone, how often do you take them to the pages of Scripture? Not just quoting it to them, but take them to it and say, you know, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There are none righteous, no, not one. And you put a heavy emphasis, just like I do on that word all, A-L-L, every single one of us, and let them see it for themselves. Then you take them to 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, where the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us of all of our sins. And let them read that for themselves. So if you've never ever walked anyone through the Roman roads, if you don't know where to start at, this, this little Bible right here is a great resource. We've got plenty of these. We can get more of these. But what it does is it helps you to walk a person through the plan of salvation. It'll start you off on this page right here, and it says, if you want to know how you can find hope in today's world, uh, world turn to Romans 1.16 on page 132. It takes all of the guesswork out of it for you. 
It'll walk you through it step by step. And you can take that person. You can show them in the pages of scripture. Here's how you can know for sure where you'll spend eternity at. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing here in Galatians chapter 4. He is walking these Judaizers through the pages of Scripture, through their own Jewish history, through their own Jewish heritage, and he's proving to them that you can be free from the law. And the example is given through the story of Abraham, Hagar, and Sarah, and Isaac right here in the pages of Scripture. And then you make the appeal. If you go through all of that effort and you don't give them the opportunity to ask Jesus Christ in their heart, you've done yourself and the gospel an injustice. Look, the power is in the scripture. There is no doubt about that whatsoever. Paul writes in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it is the power, the dunamis, the dynamite, the explosive power to all who will believe. But then when you present that, you make the appeal. While Paul doesn't have a, a pianist playing, he doesn't have musicians, he doesn't have a track that he can play to give an invitation or an altar call here in this passage, he's making an appeal as he closes out his argument for them to make a decision. Looking back over the history of evangelists and how the invitation came about, uh, D.L. Moody and Billy Graham, they would always, always, always give an appeal at the end of their services. They would always give an invitation. D.L. Moody had Ira Sankey. Ira Sankey. Uh, they began the custom of music during the invitation. Uh, Billy Graham and George Beverly Shea they frequently used the old hymn, just as I am, for their invitation time. But the Apostle Paul doesn't have that privilege and that opportunity here, but he does lead them with an appeal. Verse 31, he says, So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. And he's saying, basically, which one are you of? Are you still in bondage to the law? Or have you been set free by the Lord Jesus Christ? He's making an appeal to them. You've got to make that choice. You've got to make that decision. And he closes out his apologetic defense by giving an appeal. Would you like to be free from the bondage of the law? And here's how you can do it. Paul's appeal for a decision. Are you of the bondwoman or the free woman? I would not recommend this approach. <laughs> You're going to create a lot of confusion if you put it in those words. But you bring it down to a point to where they have to make a decision. Where will you spend eternity? Is it either one or two places? Here's how you can know for sure that you can go to heaven when you die. That's the appeal that you make. Paul is once again beating them here at their own game. And of interest here is the fact that in modern Israel, the matter of whether a person is a Jew is determined by the mother and not the father. And you notice the emphasis that Paul puts on the mothers Hagar and Sarah here in this passage. He mentions one time that we are the children of Isaac, the male. But most of the time he points back to the mothers in the situation. 
In modern Israel, the matter of whether a person was a Jew or not was determined by the mother and not the father. If you'll recall what Paul wrote about uh, this particular uh, issue to his young protege, Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.5, he says, When I call to remembrance the genuine faith which is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, I am persuaded in is in you also. He, he was tracing that lineage back to the mother and the grandmother. Timothy's father was Greek. And so here in the Apostle Paul's appeal to the Judaizers in the Gentile church, he's not only using his knowledge of scripture, but he's also using his knowledge of Jewish tradition as well. Scripture is primary to what he is using here, but the tradition is implied through his appeal. And so Paul presents this evidence. He solidifies it with scripture. He uses the Judaizers' own style of teaching against them to present a phenomenal defense of the gospel. So all of this I've said tonight, I've said to say that who better to call as an apostle than the apostle Paul here? Who else could have put all of these pieces together and create a defense, a masterful defense like this one that we read tonight? And you might be here tonight and you say, you know, Brother Tracy, I just don't have all of those qualifications. I'm not the Apostle Paul. I'm not schooled in Jewish legalism and tradition. I don't know the law. I don't know enough scripture. You could give me a thousand and one excuses as to why you don't share the gospel. But let me just say this. The power is not in the messenger. The power is in the message. You know enough right now to lead someone to the Lord. And with all of the technology that we have, all of the resources that we have, there's no reason that we can't sit down with someone and show them in the pages of Scripture, here's what it means to be saved. We're coming up to a time in our culture here in South Louisiana, where uh, they're going to live like hell one day, <laughs> and then they're going to be uh, in church the next day. Tradition. That's just the way they've done it for so long. And we live in a culture that thinks that they can get away with anything that they want to, and then all they have to do is go back and say a couple of short prayers, go through the motions, There'll be an angel on Sunday and then they'll live like hell for the rest of the week. That's not what the Bible says. And that's not what we talked about this morning. This attitude, this mindset of being a practicing Christian consistently, constantly striving for a better life for God's kingdom and for his glory. Paul makes it look real, real easy here in Galatians chapter four. But he was able to do it so easily because he did it so frequently. And if you're a practicing Christian, 
If you're practicing your apologetic defense, if you're practicing your soul winning, if you're practicing your witnessing, hey, it's something that I even need to get better at. It's something that I know I need to do more frequently. But you got to start somewhere. I guarantee you this is not how the Apostle Paul started in his first apologetic defense. This wasn't his first attempt, I assure you that much. And I'm sure that the first time that he got up and preached, he was probably nervous as all get out. I can still remember the first time I ever preached. I can remember the first few years that I was preaching. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> Marcy would literally count the times that I said uh when I was trying to preach. I still do it sometimes. But you know what? If Jesus was willing to go through what he went through, to make sure that we had our sins forgiven. And if God was willing to go through what he was going through to give us God's word and preserve it the way that he did, we've got enough information right there in the palm of our hand on a smartphone. We can Google up the Roman roads. We can Google up the spiritual laws. We can Google up any type of stuff. There are apps that you can put on your phone that all you got to do is click a button or flip a screen And it will help you walk through the plan of salvation with someone who needs to hear it. That's something that the apostle Paul didn't have. That's something that none of the apostles had. Yet here we are, we sit back and we think, I'll never be able to do this. And when we think that, the enemy has won the battle. He's got us neutralized. He's got us silenced and he's got us exactly where he wants us. So the message is the power. The gospel is the power that sets men free. And whether you use a story or not, whether you use an allegory like the Apostle Paul used here or not, the main thing is that you share what's in your heart. How do I know that God is real? How do I know that Jesus Christ died on the cross? You ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. And when you start that, when you start that conversation, when you initiate the conversation, the promise that God gave to his followers, he says, I'll give you exactly what you need to say in that hour. You may not be able to do it exactly like the Apostle Paul did here in Galatians chapter 4. But I guarantee you, if you'll take that first step of faith, God will give you the direction and the words to say. A contrasting allegory. A very neat story that the Apostle Paul tells, a very masterful defense of the issue that he's dealing with here at the church of Galatia. But it's also a good inspiration And a good guideline for us, when you begin sharing your faith, state the evidence. How do you know God is real? Because he's right here. He's living inside of me. How do you know he lives inside? Well, let's look at what it says in the the Bible. And then you make the appeal. Where, Where do you stand in your relationship with the Lord? Have you ever asked Jesus Christ into your life? Have you ever repented of your sin? You make that appeal and you give them the opportunity make that decision on their own. Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight. 
just thanking you so much for your love for us. And God, I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that if you can take this stuttering country boy from De Quincey and begin doing a work in his life and getting him to a point where he's not an introvert, he's not afraid to speak in public, He's studied enough, he's memorized enough to where he can introduce someone to a God who loves him and a Savior who died for him. God, if you can do that for me, you can do that for anyone. And I know, Lord God, beyond the shadow of a doubt that it's not easy. It's nerve-wracking. Your word clearly tells us, Lord, that you'll give us a peace that surpasses all understanding. That greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And that you have a message that you want us to share. Your great commission is to go therefore into all the world. And the apostle Paul tells us in Romans 10, how can they hear unless someone preaches to them? And Lord, it is the job of each and every believer to at some point in time share their faith to step out of their comfort zone, to open their mouth and speak the words and let someone know that it is written in Scripture that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And Lord, that's the message that I want to preach as often as possible. And that's the gospel that I want us as a church to be able to deliver to this community to let them know that they're not to be bound or in bondage to laws and tradition but they're set free by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and nothing else that eternal life is theirs if only they will believe and receive and Father God we just pray that each and every time we run across someone, Lord God, that we'll be able to give an answer with meekness and fear, like Peter said. To be ready at all times to give that response and to give that appeal. And I pray, Lord God, for each and every person within the sound of my voice right now that you would empower them with your Holy Spirit And give them the courage to step out some point in time in this next week, Lord God. Maybe for the first time, share their faith. To find someone that they can be a light to. That each and every day, Lord God, we'll be looking for those opportunities. To let this world know what you have done for us and what you can do for them. And we just ask it all. In the most precious and holy name of Jesus Christ, we pray. And everybody said, amen. The preceding message was presented by First Baptist Church in Morgan City, Louisiana. For more information about a relationship with Jesus Christ or about First Baptist Church, including contact info, go to the website www.fbcmc.org. Thank you for listening, and may God bless you.